I would like for you to grab a copy of the Pillars of Truth, the Pillars of Truth, and let's look together at page number 43 regarding the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Page number 43. This chapter contains three paragraphs, and I'd like for us to look together at the first. Page 43. It says, Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded, and obscured from them. Yet, he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. They being engraven upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Friends, I wanted us to look at that together because it sets up nicely where we're going to be at today in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. So if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 10. We have thoroughly been enjoying going through verse by verse the sermonic letter written to these first century Jews who have been converted out of Judaism into the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies and the new covenant faith of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to read from verse 21 all the way down to 39 to help set the context. And Lord willing, today we will treat verses 32 and 39 and wrap up chapter 10 in our series. Let us begin by looking together at verses 21 through 39. The word of the Lord says, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience, I'm sorry, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, but, call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. By this point, in time, uh, for those who have been part of this sermon series, we come to the end of chapter 10, and we know the historical context of what's going on. Before our visitors today, let's just recap that context. This letter is being written to a first century church, and the church largely is comprised of Hebrews, those who are ethnic Jews who have received the effectual calling, we believe, at least that's presumptively how their letter's written. And they have come to an illumination, we see in our text today, a knowledge, that is, of the truth of the gospel. 
and they have professed the truth of that gospel. But there was something that was tempting them. We've been picking up as we've been going through this letter, haven't we? Most notably in chapter 3 and then in chapter 6 and then here very uh, apparently in chapter 10. There was something tempting them to apostatize and abandon the faith that they had professed. We get an idea that from chapter 6, it was something that was social or political pressures, cultural pressures, perhaps from their family members or from their community being Jewish and still in Judaism, wanting them to go back or somehow blend their, their faith with the old covenant. And he's been explaining to them, for those of you who are on the edge of apostasy, Let me lay out for you all the blessed superiorities of Jesus Christ, his priesthood, his covenant, his sanctuary, etc., his sacrifice, so that you would never, ever go back to that conditional works-based system by which, as A.J. emphasized in his readings of Romans 10, you can never be saved. That system that they were being tempted to go back to, that that maybe their family members and their community was urging them or compelling them to reconsider has been repeatedly described by the inspired writer of Hebrews as being weak, as being inferior. Because at the end of the day, it did not rest solely, capital S, or as we say in the solas, alone, capital A, upon the finished work of the Messiah, the promised Messiah. But it included somehow or another an element of their own works. And that's what made it weak. Because year after year, they were reminded of their insufficiencies and their need of that promised Messiah that shall come and wash them of all of their sins by His own stripes and His own blood. And so we come here to the latter part of chapter 10 and what we see very clearly is that these first century Christians, they needed to endure amid such hostility that was being pressed against their faith. And I hope you would agree that this need of endurance, this need of persevering in a hostile climate isn't unique to these first century Jews who were converted out of Judaism into Christianity, but it's unique to you as well. Take, for example, the report that came out from the World Watch List just last year that demonstrates that persecution against Christians continues to rise, especially in Asia and in Africa. And that how the COVID-19 quote-unquote pandemic exasperated the persecutions. It goes on to say, according to its findings, there has been roughly over 360 million people, that is one out of seven globally, who have endured persecution and discrimination in their own homeland. It goes on to say that overall 5,898 Christians were killed, which is up 23.8% versus the last time they did this report in the year 2020. There was in 2022, beloved, 5,110 churches that were attacked or boarded up and closed, which is up 13.8% from the 2020. 
Listen to this. There were 6,175 Christians that were arrested and thrown into dungeon. We think of Jeremiah thrown into the miry pit, thrown into prison without a trial, which is up 44.3% since 2020. And there were 3,829 reported as being kidnapped, many of which were women, which was up. 123.9% since 2020. And so the message to endure, the message to be prepared to endure is ever much and ever bit relevant for us today as God's people. Lest these be impersonable statistics. Think of a very dear friend to this own church here. Pastor Sukumar Bandrapali living in India. He's going to be with us in a couple weeks to give us a report of what's going on there in his ministry and to preach to us. Think of how his grown adult children who because of their identification with the Christian faith bear Christian names, Andrew and Rachel. They are purposefully discriminated against in their pursuit of certain areas of education, in certain pursuits of careers and vocations. No, they're going to be, because they're Christians in a largely pagan Hindu society, they're going to be restricted and kept at a lower tier of income. I sent Pastor Sukumar an email just yesterday because I read, I'm trying to keep up to date of what my brother's going through in his country with this type of persecution. And I said, is it true that your parliament is, is, is considering uh, conversion laws to where there's actually going to be laws like there is in modern day Israel to where you cannot go outside of your church and talk about the name of Jesus Christ in order to proselytize or spread the gospel as AJ encouraged us to do because you'll get thrown in prison. You see, they're afraid of the power of the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So they clamp down with persecution to intimidate the Christians. And we move just a little westward here in our own country. A country which has a constitutional document which is intended to preserve your and my right to practice and to worship in our uh, religion according to our own conscience. Who's being specifically targeted in this country? You know who it is. It's you. It's the Christians who are specifically being marginalized, uh, targeted to be silenced in the marketplace of ideas, and in many cases even financially persecuted with lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits of unfounded accusations, whether it's the cake baker, the photographer, or the event hall uh, business owner, uh, they're being targeted, aren't they? And so today in our text, as part of the introduction, we clearly see that a vital and a very important fact that every single person who dares to pick up their cross and become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, better get down and better understand, is that the Christian faith, the Christian call, requires endurance. Requires endurance. And thus, that's the title of our message today. Requires endurance. So how are we going to approach our text? Well, I submit to you that it really offers us a contour that organizes itself. Verses 32 and 34 There is the reality of persecution mentioned and the response to the persecution. In verse 35, we, I believe, see something that helps keep persecution in perspective, in the proper perspective. 
In verses 36 and 37, patience is mentioned in relationship to persecution. And then lastly, in verses 38 and 39, we see that preservation or perseverance through persecution is an absolute necessity. So let us begin here with our first heading, the mentioning of the reality of persecution and the right response to it in verses 32 and 34. He begins in verse 32 with this conjunction clause, but call to remembrance the former days. In other words, he's saying here, for all of those who are on the edge of apostasy, the inspired writer, after severely warning them, don't turn back. Stop and pause and call to remembrance. But what does he, beloved, want them to recall? Well, he tells them. He wants them to recall that how after they were illuminated, how that they heard and they understood and they accepted the gospel of Christ, they accepted the new covenant arrangement made available through Christ, that they were going to be faced with the reality that it would come with a cost. Call to remembrance that after you were illuminated and you received this blessed truth, that our forefathers had looked forward to. We had much anticipation for. And you, it was explained to you. That's what in the Greek the word illuminated means. Something being made clear. Many believe this was the Apostle Paul that came to this church and sat down with them as he wonderfully did. And he started in the Old Testament. And that's where we start with the gospel. Amen. We start in Genesis 3.15 and we go forward. And he explained to them, didn't he? How that Jesus Christ was that promised Messiah. And then what did they do? They professed it. They said, yes, we believe it. And he's saying, remember, call to remembrance those former days that after you were eliminated, what? Ye endured a great fight of affliction. Dear friends, to be a first century Jew was such a bold move in your affiliation of what religion or what uh, a uh, horse you were going to hook your wagon up to. It came with serious consequences. As one commentator I come across said, quote, for a Jew to confess faith in the Messiah crucified, as these professors did, would have brought upon him the detestation and abuse of his compatriots, all of his friends, the ruination of his business, and even possible expulsion from one's family circle. Our inspired writer here describes it, doesn't he, in verse 32, as a great fight of affliction. And this is a fitting description, I think, of what these first century Christians indeed faced. And with regards to what they faced, we really don't have to speculate that much. Because we have recorded for us a historical narrative in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there. Many of you already know it. But let me just share with you from Acts 8, verses 1 through 3. This is the historical record of what was happening to the first century church, these great fight of afflictions in the first martyr that was ever martyred. And that is the blessed Stephen. There it says, And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they, that, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judah and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, before he was converted, he made havoc 
In the Greek there, the idea is Saul was, was uh, uh, ravaging the church, devastating, doing all that he could to ruin the church, entering into every house and hauling away men and women, committing them to prison. Friends, that's 2022 statistics I just shared with you. The great fight of affliction that they were enduring. Our inspired writer, look back here at our text in verse 33. He details some of these persecutions. He mentions here, there having been made a spectacle, or in the authorized version, a gazing stock. What's this mean? Well, it means literally to be exposed publicly. So we get the picture of the idea of these professors of the faith being put somehow on public display. Now, lest our imaginations be wanting, what happened when they were put on public display, made a gazing stock, made a spectacle? Well, it tells us there in verse 33, to be reproach, to be afflicted. As one Greek scholar informs us, this original language of what's going on here carries with it the idea of being put on public display to endure unjustifiable verbal abuses inflicted upon you. And so you can almost imagine this. What he's talking about here, he's calling them to remembrance of the reality of their persecutions, the reality of their sufferings, is that could it have been, beloved, in a family get-together, perhaps at a cousin's bar mitzvah or what have you, that, oh, they're so-and-so, you know, they've apostatized. They're, they're antinomian. They don't care about God's law anymore. They think that you can be saved by that one guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as the party goes on, right? They bring them and make them a public spectacle in front of all of the family. Or perhaps in the community square. They're actually brought in as they've come to visit family from afar. And they're going to be drugged out into the streets violently and put on public display. Why? Because of their commitment and their profession to Jesus Christ. They were made a gazing stock. They were made... A spectacle. Unjustifiable verbal abuse. And this sort of thing didn't stop with these first century converted Hebrews, friends. It is carried over as a tactic of Satan and the world century upon century, even up until our very own day. These early Christians and subsequent generations of Christians who placed their allegiance and their commitment to Jesus Christ have been accused of atheism, cannibalism, most prominently uh, accused of being seditious to civil powers. In the first century particularly, the preaching of the Apostle Paul, they were, they were accused of being antinomian. And today especially, do we not hear the unjustifiable verbal abuse and claim that we as the followers of Christ and God's people are bigots? We are haters. We are judgmental. Well, I guess if you have a presupposition on a carnal and a worldly definition of what love and truth is, then yes, we would be that. But founded upon the truth of God's word, who have been illuminated with the truth of his moral law, no, the most loving thing we can do is to tell people the truth. And why are we called these things? Because we will not bow the knee to this world's God. We will not bow the knee to this world's moral perverted system. And so, just as they were made a public gazing stock and spectacle, so will you be. So will you be. You do not get a pass, dear Christian. Do not think that you get an exemption from being mocked, 
and ridiculed publicly for claiming the truth of God's word. To follow Christ, he's showing them. He wants them to remember, it cost you something. There was a reality to the persecution that you experienced. Ah, however, however, the inspired writer here does not intend for the reality of their past and most likely present persecutions to be the thing that he wants them to call into focus in their memories to help them in their times of apostasy or I mean temptation unto apostasy. That's not what it is. Just the reality of their persecutions. Rather, he wants them to recall their response to those persecutions. And that is what he's going to capitalize upon in order to motivate them to come away from the edge of the cliff of being tempted of going back. Yes, I know you've been made a spectacle. Oh, dear friends, I know you have been made a gazing stock. Remember, he's the one in bonds in verse 33 and 34. Oh, but remember your response that you had. Look at verse 32. This is what we're seeing. Their response to the persecution. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of affliction. Endured there in the Greek carries with it this idea of calmly being under and bearing the weight of ill treatment or misfortune. And look what he says here in verse 33. While ye were made a gazing stock, a spectacle, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them also who were being used and treated this way. Companions there became becoming a partner. Your response was, Sister Julia, as if it were in a sense as where if I wasn't enduring the gazing stock, but you were, that I would come out in that public square and I would become your companion and stand with you. And say, as my sister, as my brother stands here and bears the reproach of Christ and His covenant that He has promised us and we have accepted, I will take your mockery as well. You see, this is how they responded to the persecution beforehand. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 34. Ye had compassion of me and my bonds. So whatever bonds he's in, the compassion there, an emotional, internal sympathy and feeling as though I'm in bonds with you, brother. That was their response before. And it doesn't stop there. He says, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, the things that you had that I lacked because of the persecution. It got stolen from me. I lost it, whatever it was. And you helped me. And you gave it to me. We gather that in this, his intentions in verses 32 to 34 is to exhort them not to recall only the reality of their persecutions, which is a very real reality, but rather to recall their perseverance under such persecution, which was very commendable considering what they endured. This wise and this older brother in the faith knows all too well, doesn't he? That the path of, uh, that lies ahead for these Christians will continue to continue to challenge their faith. The path that lies ahead for them will continue to challenge their resolve. The old preachers 
They used to describe the church of Jesus Christ in two ways. The church at rest and the church militant. The church at rest are those who have gone on to be with the Lord in the spiritual realm called heaven. But the church militant are those who are still alive on this side of glory. The church militant are the saints who are still presently living. And the scripture calls these saints to fight the good fight. The scriptures call the church militant to run the race as to win it. The scriptures call the militant church to mortify the deeds of the flesh through the strength of the spirit. The scriptures calls the church militant these first century Christians, 21st century Christians, to persevere, joyfully endure unto the end, no matter the cost. But now we come in verse 34 to see what it is that motivated, what it was that encouraged them to be courageous in the public square despite everything that was being foisted upon them that we read about in the book of Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 34. This is what motivated them, friends. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. The secret to their endurance, the secret to their compassion, the secret to their joyful sacrificial giving in the former days was this. A promised possession of a heavenly inheritance. One that is far superior to any earthly possession that can be lost or stolen through the hands of persecuting enemies. This is what motivated them through these things. We know that's the proper meaning because look what it says in verse 34. You have these things in heaven. Not here on earth. It's a better and an enduring substance. We see here, beloved, by this, he is speaking of spiritual realities. He's speaking of spiritual blessings which belong to all of Christ's sons and all of Christ's daughters. These are the things described by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 4, and he says, They are incorruptible, undefiled, and they will never fade away. These are our hope, Christians. These are our hope which have been promised unto us by our Lord Jesus when He said to His disciples prior to His return unto glory where He is right now at the right hand of the Father. He said in John 14, 2-3, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you in light of verse 37 today, I will come again. I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am in glory, there also you may be. Well, considering all of this up to this point, I think it's appropriate for us to make the following application. Christians, during seasons of persecution, during seasons of affliction and our trials, we are actually afforded the opportunity to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where the Lord Jesus tells us 
that moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Do we have that perception of trials and afflictions? It's as though every dark cloud that may come upon us in our Christian life is a glorious opportunity for me to invest in an eternal substance and inheritance by joyfully enduring under the Father's loving care, no matter what it is, something that will never lose interest. There's a whole lot of people right now in Russia that invested in a lot of things that has lost all of its value. There's a whole lot of people economically in Europe right now that are losing a whole lot of money. Oh, but brothers and sisters, what we gain in our sufferings and our persecutions under the loving rod of Christ, the providence of God, no matter what He may bring upon us, it is refined gold that will never lose value. That's what he's teaching you here in this text. This is what he was teaching them in that text that compelled them to go through with everything they were going through. I cited from Matthew 6.20 there where Jesus said, neither moth nor rust can corrupt, nor thieves can break in and steal. But he goes on to the next verse in verse 21 to say, for where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. And this nicely sets up for us verse 35 now. Which is the very thing that will keep all sufferings, all persecutions in their proper perspective. Look at verse 35. Keeping persecution in its proper perspective. Here in verse 35, the inspired writer exhorts them to not cast away their confidence. Which, he says has great recompense of reward. Whatever this confidence is, he doesn't want them to disregard it as though it has no value or that it is unimportant. Because that's what the Greek means, cast away. Meaning you discard it because you see no value in it. Don't cast it away, whatever it is. Whatever this confidence is, he sees it as the key thing which aided them, beloved, in the former days in their wholehearted attachment to Christ and His covenant. So whatever this confidence is, by all means, don't cast it away as it has no value. Therefore, you see in verse 35, He's exhorting them to maintain this confidence because without it, they will not be equipped to withstand the inevitable onslaught of trials and persecutions that they will no doubt continue to face as they attempt to follow the calling of Christ in their lives. Well then, what is this confidence in verse 35? which effectively is utilized to keep persecution in its proper perspective. Are we to think? Or are we to interpret where he says your confidence as this meaning something that originates within their own uh, human, man, uh, psychological or emotional confidence? Like, 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 like they grit their teeth and muster up this confidence? He says in verse 35, it's your confidence after all. Perhaps that's what it is. 
Well, I think if we begin to go down that road, we'd be sadly mistaken because we just need to remember who the original audience was. The original audience is this first century church who in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, were tempted to somehow blend the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant of conditional works with the covenant of grace, which is unconditional. They were tempted to blend that. This is supposed to be something that they muster up. Recall how that all through chapter 7, 8, and 9, he's been demonstrating the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' covenant, because some within the first century church were being tempted to forsake Christ's covenant of grace and return back to the weak, the powerless old covenant, which Jesus abrogated and was mentioned in chapter 8, verse 13, as that very thing that was waxing old and ready to vanish away. What is the confidence here being described? That's the key. That's the essential element to keep persecution in perspective. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 3.6. He uses this Greek word three other times in his letter. And the context and the way he uses it explains clearly what he means here. Notice here in Hebrews 3.6, he says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, those who have been with us in this sermon series, you remember chapters 1 and chapter 2, and then chapter 3 he's going into, and he's explaining to them once again the clarity of the gospel message, the illumination that he's mentioning today in verse 32 that they understood and they accepted. So if you hold fast that confidence of the gospel and the rejoicing of the hope firm into the end, guess what? You're part of Christ's house. So the confidence there is not in and of themselves, it's in the gospel, the new covenant gospel. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Turn, perhaps you just look across the page, or you might have to turn your page. Look at Hebrews 4.16. The second place he uses this same Greek word. After demonstrating very clearly the superiority of Christ in all of his different attributes and his priestly work, he says here, verse 16, let us, his audience, them who he's talking to, Therefore, come boldly. Now, that is translated there boldly. The same Greek word. Unto where? The throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is the boldness something that's originating from their own efforts, things they've done in order to, you know, build up their pride? No, you're coming boldly to the throne of grace. We exposited this. We taught this. We remembered on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. You're only able to come boldly into the throne of grace because of your covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus. You never sought him. He sought you. You did not buy this passage or this entrance into the throne of grace. He purchased you. You see the boldness there, just as in Hebrews 3, 6, translated confidence, it's all established upon the gospel, isn't it? Lastly, coming up to where we're at today, go to Hebrews 10, 19. After spending 
almost this entire letter demonstrating the superiority of Christ, his covenant and his sacrifice, he makes this wonderful concluding statement which trumps all of the sacrifices that were offered up under the old covenant economy and the temple worship. He says in chapter 10, verse 19, which adds greater clarity to verse 35 where we're at today. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, same Greek word, to enter into the holiest by how? The blood of Jesus. Dear friends, in all three instances of how he has used this word in his sermonic letter, he is connecting the confidence, he is connecting the boldness, not with anything that originates or supplied or that is supplied by us. He is connecting it with what, beloved? The surety, the covenant guarantee which comes only from Christ and his blessed covenant. Recognizing here as a wise and discerning preacher, this man inspired by God's spirit understands what is at stake at the hearts and the minds of some of these professors in this church who are on the brink of possible apostasy and returning to the old covenant Judaism. And what does he do? He points them not to confidence within themselves to keep persecution in perspective. He points them to the confidence that can only rest in Christ. In Christ. And so at this point, friends, I believe that the most basic application would be that, dear saint of God, today here who is purchased by the covenant blood of Christ, what is it in your life right now that may be tempting you to possibly cast away what you have in Jesus Christ and return back to your own ways. What could it possibly be? I don't think any of you in here are tempted to go back to Judaism. But none of us in here are immune from the temptations of walking away from Christ, lest you be deceived. Well, to help you, And to remind myself and all of us together of what we possess in Jesus as his precious, purchased covenant people. Friends, let me just share with you a couple names that he has in scriptures in order to stir up once again that faith that endures to stir up within you once again that faith that preserves to stir up and to move away the darkened clouds that possibly have settled in a valley that you may be in so that the sun of truth may shine through. Remember in the Word of God that He is called the Advocate in 1 John 2.1. It says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why would you ever abandon the advocate to return to anything where you are standing alone between a thrice holy God and be your own advocate? He is called the author and the finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2 says, who for the joy that was set before Him, you, beloved, His precious, purchased, covenant people, He endured the cross, 
despising the shame. Oh, why, you see, the writer is saying, would you forfeit and cast away this? He is the author of eternal salvation. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation, not temporary salvation, not not conditional salvation. It's eternal, unconditional, free, unmerited grace bestowed upon us effectually by the power of God's Spirit, reaching through even the most rebellious, hardened sinner. What? So that we may be free in Christ. He is called, oh dear saint, be reminded the bread of life. Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, which was Him. He is the substance. Oh, and He is the deliverer, especially for the weary who need to hear this when they're in the times of persecution. Penalized just for being truthful. Penalized for being the people of God. Penalized, silenced, uh, uh, accused unjustly. Dragged into court for being the salt and light of the earth. Remember, dear saint, of God, uh, dear saint in Romans 11.26, He is your deliverer. Paul said they're inspired by the Holy Spirit and so all Israel shall be saved. He's already demonstrated who the Israel is. It's the Israel of God. As it was written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. He will turn away the ungodly enemies from this first century church. He has done it time and time again so that he always has a people, a remnant, and his gospel perseveres. These and many other names attributed to Christ throughout the Scriptures, are to have an effect to us, His disciples, the needed assurance that we ultimately always, in times of persecution, here's what keeps in perspective, we have the victory. We always have the victory. Or, in other words, in the hymn we sung today, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever that my friends will keep persecution in perspective you don't need to be running around anxious fearful uh, you know uh, keep keep persecution in perspective There is a reason for everything that God's doing, as A.J. was talking about, in this nation. You are to be diligent to be God's man and God's woman in this hour. You are to be purposeful in your proclamation, as he urged us to do, to spread the good news of Christ. And come hell or come high water, no matter what happens, beloved, God's kingdom is forever. Are you prepared to go with Christ no matter what comes? Or are we prepared as a little church to come together and have compassion upon one another when you're being hauled into jail and the rest of the men in this church have to muster up and make sure that your family's provided for while you're in jail? You say, oh, that's never going to happen here. I'll be careful. You have no idea what may come here in the West. 
But these truths that he's outlining for us, friends, they will help us to suffer well. They will help us to endure honorably. This takes us now to verses 36 and 37 under our third heaven, or third heaven. (laughs) We're not preaching on Paul here. Um, In the third heading here, patience. We need patience in times of persecution. We have observed that this original audience in the first century had indeed endured great sufferings because of their profession of faith and confidence in who Christ is and what he accomplished. That's what gave them the motivations to get through it. But now look with me at verse 36 and 37. They need also joyfully to continue their endurance. The same endurance that marked their earlier former days and their witness in their Christian life during those great fight of afflictions. They joyfully gave, they felt one another's needs, etc. They're called now to continue that endurance. In other words, they not only need to continue in believing the gospel message with unwavered faith, that's the emphasis of verses 38 and 9, but now they're called to do this in addition to continued reproaches and afflictions being foisted upon them. Continue to endure in patience, not only believing, but suffering. We see in verse 36 that this is the will of God for them. We sing it in our hymn. There is not one thing that comes upon us that's not dialed in by the Son of Love. The reproaches, the public mockery, the afflictions, the taking of their possessions, the murder that was being committed, it was all decreed by God. It was His will. Not only will the confidence in verse 35 be needed, but we see here now with the reality of persecution, with the reality that this plays in some way in the scheme of God's will, that there is going to be required patience to endure these continued afflictions unto the end. Or until the promised return of Jesus Christ in verse 37. And until he returns, this church militant, us today as part of church militant, our wait is not over. We still are waiting for this promised second return of Christ. Until the promised return of Christ mentioned in verse 37, the waiting of the church militant is over. And so we need this continued exhortation that we are receiving today from the word of God to be patiently enduring afflictions and persecutions not wavering in the faith because the teaching here in verses 36 and 37 is very clear those who patiently preserve in the faith to the very end no matter the cost are those who will come notice to possess all that God has promised to those who what exhibit such persevering faith you see the connection Having acknowledged this reward that God will grant to the saint who patiently perseveres to the end, I believe there is something in this text also that demands our acknowledgement as well, and it's this. Just as it's being made here clear in verse 36, that there can be no receiving of the promise without patient perseverance through trials. Here it is. 
There will be no rewarding of promises without trials. This is setting up chapter 11. All through redemptive history, there is not one son, not one daughter of God who has received the blessed promises without trials. You see that in the text? Look at verse 36. Ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God. What was the will of God, beloved? Verses 32 through 35. Because of your confidence in Christ, your commitment to Christ, you were willing to suffer all of those things. Here's the newsflash. It wasn't Satan's design. It was the will of God. And in so much as you joyfully endure those persecutions, you will receive all of the promises that God has made uh, available to you in Jesus Christ. Now you wrap your mind around that. I mean, most of us would say, as I was talking to our brother before church, most of us, as I was reading through John Flavel's preparations for suffering and thinking about this, most of us would design things this way. You know, someone comes and they they explain to you all the realities of who my begotten son Jesus is and his covenant that he offers. And I'm going to send forth the power of my spirit to open up the your self-deception and the reality of who He is. And you embrace Him. And then all of a sudden, maybe not just within 24 hours or 48 hours, but shortly thereafter, your life just, just gets a whole lot better from there. I mean, pieces of the puzzle just start falling into place, you know. No more struggles with sin. Little by little, they just go away. Uh, you know, other people in your family, you just sort you know, they, they all come to a same faith and it's just this one happy kumbaya. Everybody in your workplace, you see, every, everybody you share the gospel with, they just receive and everything gets better, you know. That's how I would write the script. But we cannot get away from the invariable, inflexible principle that is all throughout the Bible that God utilizes. Every single person that will come and bow the knee before Christ in the heavenly glory, guess what? They're going to be riddled with scars. I don't mean necessarily physically. Oh, but many will. Many will. I, I shared with you the statistics of where the church is at in the year 2022. 123% increase of little girls and women who are uh, uh, Christians who will not forsake Christ being kidnapped. They're going to be there that day, brother, with scars. And there's going to be many of us who will have other types of scars who when we come to the finish line, persevering unto the end, enduring, not forsaking His covenant love, His covenant mercy, His ever-flowing fount of grace, pardoning and covering all of our filth. Oh, all of us will be there that day, knowing it was only by His grace we made it. It was only by His grace that we made it. We will not be excused from the will of God, and so we need patience in times of persecution. 
Notice that in the immediate context, the idea necessarily involves that it is God's will that these first century believers, according to the language of Acts 14.22, must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God and thereby receive the promises. This principle of endurance, this principle of pilgrimage, this principle of affliction, this principle of warfare, this is what is required to come into possession of God's promises. And He gives you the confidence to get it, not in of yourselves, but in the gospel. This is going to become patently obvious when we begin to see how this principle of suffering of the reproach of this world for the cause of God and His truth unfolds in the following chapter where example after example he demonstrates how the old covenant elect were, according to chapter 11, verse 37, stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, but they overcame to be united with us in perfection in the one mediator of all of redemptive history, Jesus Christ. Can't wait till we get to the end of chapter 11 awesome text ah though consider with me it's this reality of required sufferings you need required endurance God demands required sufferings ouch that's not popular today is it God requires suffering in the life of his people in their preparation for the heavenly inheritance and it is that reality I hope you see today that an application of two things is stirred up in your heart. The first is that when you're in times of persecutions, you cry and you pray what God has promised in His Word to never place upon you more than what you can bear in that hour of temptation, but through the temptation, make a way of escape. Am I the only one in the room here in my prayer closet? who has been in a season of affliction, even persecution, unjustifiably verbally accused of things that I had not done and said, oh God, please don't place on me more than that which I can bear in this hour. Am I the only one? No, I'm not the only one. That's a precious promise to you, isn't it? But then there's another thing I want you to make an application of this, knowing that each and every person sitting next to you in the covenant community of God will be required to suffer in some degree or another in order to make it unto the end through confidence in Christ and His uh, gospel so that they may possess the eternal inheritance. Here's an application I want you to remember. When you see another brother and sister who is entering into an hour of temptation or suffering or persecution or is in the midst of that hour of temptation and persecution and maybe they're not handling it exactly according to the textbook, Have compassion, brothers and sisters. Have compassion. For it's not yet your hour to suffer in their shoes. It's not yet your hour to go through the valley that they're walking through. Oh, have compassion. John Flavel was saying, in a sense, that there are so many of us who are not preparing our hearts to enter into suffering. So that when we see it in the life of others not being handled the way it should be, or that we enter it ourselves, that we're shocked We're taken off guard. We're overcome. Or we quickly judge. Why? Perhaps it is that person failed to hear a message like this. And they weren't daily preparing in the seasons of good times. Saying, Lord, I understand 
that it is required that I suffer reproach for the name of Christ in some way, shape, or form in order to receive the blessed inheritance you gave me. Oh God, make me to be like Flint. Help me to be like the Apostle Paul. Help me to be like all of those we're going to look at in chapter 11. Because if I know myself amongst the house of God, I am perhaps the weakest. You see, the application is humility, beloved. Required sufferings isn't fearfulness. It's not that you're fearful, but it humbles you knowing how much you depend on God and Christ. That's what it does. And it humbles in your lens as you look out to your other brothers and sisters. Well, time doesn't permit me to really unpack verses 38 and 39. But to be a nice bookend to our sermon today, notice that we've considered the reality and the right response to persecution that they possessed. We noticed what gave them the proper perspective of the persecutions that came upon them. And we notice now that they needed to continued patience. But there's something else that he wants to make sure that he bookends on this sober exhortation that he gave in verses 26 through 31 about apostasy. And he says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. He's talking to those who are teetering with this idea of going back to the conditional covenant principles. That's what he's talking about there. The apostasy. You can't add one condition to the gospel of Christ, friends. That's why he's coming with these sober warnings. It's all about the purity of the gospel. He says in verse 39, but we are not of them. I love how he does this. He's so gentle with them. He knows that the readers in his original audience, there are some who are actually tampering with the doctrine of justification through Christ alone, by faith alone. And what does he do? He still gives them the benefit of the doubt. He sets firmly and forthrightly with clarity the gospel. He says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And this is a perfect example of how to apply Galatians 6.1. You come alongside an erring brother and you rebuke them with gentleness and meekness, considering the temptation that they're under. We'll come back to verses 38 and 39 because it really sets up as a nice springboard on the doctrine of faith that goes all throughout chapter 11. So let me conclude with this thought. For first century Christians that we are considering today suffering for Christ, it was an inevitable accompaniment to their life as serious disciples. I hope that that's clear. But this is still the case today in many parts of the world, tying in my introduction now. But not so much in the West. Not so much in the West. Christians in the West, we have long enjoyed a period, a very unusual period in redemptive history of rest from such afflictions and persecutions. Study your history. It's very unusual. However, I hope you would agree with me. I hope you don't watch too much news. You've got to be informed. You've got to stay plugged in. You've got to be engaged. But the stuff would make you depressed. Be careful. However, if you're watching the signs of the times, you know that these are ominous signs that cannot be ignored by any of us. Things are a-changing, as we say here in the Midwest. 
Things are a-changing, aren't they? You can't get away from it. The Lord is doing something. We don't know exactly what. But we've learned today that no matter what His hand and His sovereignty prescribes for any of us in any country in which we live, if we are called to suffer for the sake of righteousness, He will be faithful unto us and give us the confidence, the boldness to endure patiently any persecutions. Let us today, beloved, be prepared to suffer well. Let us be prepared to follow the example of this first century church and endure well. Let us, with the Apostle Paul, say as he did in Acts 21.13, I am ready not to be bound only, thrown into jail, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, can you honestly say that? Can you honestly testify that? Do you know Jesus Christ as your sovereign, sacrificial, covenant Savior who bled and died for you? And Brother Eddie, if it was called upon by the hands of those who want to martyr you, that you would gladly say, yes, He is my Lord. He is my King. Take my life. Let it be. Praises be unto Him. Oh, would you be ready to do that? Do you know that sort of internalization and love of Christ? That as He bled and died, you saw yourself upon that cross and you would willingly die right alongside Him. If you don't know that, if you have never come and seen Christ that way, please know that it is your sins. Oh, dear sinner, unconverted friend, it is your sins that placed Him upon the cross. Your sins nailed Him to the tree. But in that picture that you see of Him hung on the tree because of your filthy, condemnful sins isn't a picture of condemnation to you. It is a picture of His mercy and His love for you. And so here at the bleeding side of cross, anyone amongst us today who has not come and stood beside Him covered in His blood, let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day where you pledge in your heart by the power of God's Spirit calling you to come to Christ's side and receiving this free gift of eternal salvation and allegiance to Him come no matter what. Let today be that day. Oh, be set free from any doubts. Be set free from any conditions. And rest in Christ. And when you find that rest, When the sword comes to your back, you will say, let it come. Pick up the history books, friends. Pick up, we have a precious history as the church of Christ. I love the covenanters. I love reading the history of the the Reformation. When they would come, and back then it was very, it was like, it was like, uh, you know, sentencing to someone to death was kind of in a way uh, uh, a very prolonged thing. Like a guy knew he was going to go to the Newgate prison and then to be tortured and to be killed. And 
you know, they would, they would send a messenger beforehand, you know, Sir, Sir Michael, uh, you know, you have someone here to take you away. They're coming. They're about five miles away. They're going to take you and they're going to do these things to you to be burned. And the guy would sit there and, you know, there's records of this. It's in John Flavel's book. He'd get up and he'd get his best coat on. He'd put on his best hat and he would say, you know, Lord, my hour has come. You have prepared me for this time. And he would walk out with his chin up high and he'd go to be burned at the stake. Why? Because he had that rest. He had that rest that only Christ can give in his gospel. Well, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are humbled by Your love. We are humbled, O God, by Your goodness that You have bestowed upon us through Thy begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our covenant messenger, who has brought us the good news that by His righteous life, by His obedient life, that all of His righteousness has been counted to us through, O God, Your gospel proclamation, That even though we are the ill-deserving ones, even though we are those who are worthy to be cast aside because of the sins that we have committed, You have, O God, chosen us. You have loved us, not because of anything good in us, but, O God, from the depths of Your mercy and the depths of Your grace, You have sent forth the reality and the truth of Your Son to bring us all to this place today to be reminded That as you have chosen us to be your sons and your daughters, that, oh God, you will, as many hoary heads in this room already have experienced, require of us suffering, require of us great trials. And, oh God, knowing the weak, Father, the weakness of ourselves, Almighty Father, we pray that you would grant us, Lord, your Spirit grant us, we pray, the promise that you will never place upon us that which is more than we could bear. God, help us to be the salt and light we need to be in the day and age in which we live, Lord. We are well aware the providence that is being, Lord, stirred up around us. We see the dark clouds. Lord, may it prepare us to be ever more faithful, ever more committed to your cause and your glory. But also may it prepare us, dear Lord, as we've learned in this first century church to suffer, Lord, with honor in the name of Jesus. Help us to, oh God, be equipped to be willing to pay whatever the cost is for the honor and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we follow his example. May we we be found worthy to be, Lord, called to follow in his footsteps into such sufferings. And we are very careful, Father, knowing the truth of ourselves, of that which we pray. It is a high, it is a serious, it is a lofty thing to pray such a prayer, to be counted worthy to suffer as Christ. Oh Lord, we are fragile, we are fickle, we are weak. And we pray, O God, as we pray this very prayer, we ask You, Lord, whatever may come, that You would equip us and that You would give us the strength to follow the example of our brothers and sisters who are at rest now with You in heaven, benefiting from those things that never fade away. Lord, we confess our sins before You. We confess that we believe that Jesus has forgiven us And all we confess that He has purchased us. And we confess, O God, that You are faithful and You are true to all of Your promises. Just as You were in the first century as You are today in the 21st century. 
Make yourself, O God, we pray, known more to us each and every day in our own personal lives as we go through the various afflictions that we will no doubt endure. We trust you will do this, Father, because you love us, because we are covered under, Lord, the blood of your Son, Jesus. We thank you in all things, in his holy and his precious name, we pray. Amen. Thank you.